The Who was one of the classic rock bands of the 1960s. They were part of what was called the British Invasion, a succession of English bands that dominated the U.S. pop music chart for years. Young Americans faced with the ongoing war in Vietnam, government, government failures, systemic racism, and wealth inequity were restless for change. So perhaps, perhaps it's not surprising they looked to music from a different country as the soundtrack for their angst. Bands such as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Zombies, the Kinks, the Dave Clark Five, and the Who became household names on this side, side of the pond. Perhaps the most famous song by the Who was We Won't Get Fooled Again. It expressed the revolutionary spirit of that turbulent era, beginning with a call to rise up against the establishment. We'll be fighting in the streets with our children at our feet, and the morals that they worship will be gone. Yet before long, a note of despair and cynicism creeps in, that perhaps the new order won't be all that different from the old. We were liberated from the fold, that's all, and the world looks just the same, and history ain't changed. But their deep longing for genuine change persists, and every chorus ends with them getting down on their knees and praying that we don't get fooled again. Alas, after a long musical instrumental interlude, I mean, it runs to more than two minutes, the vocalist returns with the haunting final words, Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Forty years later, a young, articulate civil rights attorney caught the imagination of Americans with his audacious message of hope and change. But by the time he became president in 2008, Barack Obama had become so deeply enmeshed in the political machine and the big money that fuels it that many of his supporters felt disappointed and even betrayed by him. A political system can never bring utopia. The thirst for power and money that is needed to get to the top will always compromise the vision. It will inevitably be, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I offer you all that as background for today's look at another Advent story. Actually, it's another song. Not a 60s pop song, but the song Mary sings in response to the announcements that she will bear a son who will become Messiah. Some of you will know it as the Magnificat. What did Mary expect when she got the unprecedented announcement about her future? The announcement that she, a virgin, would bear a son who would become Messiah. Well, being a child of her culture and a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, she might well have expected a king in the mold of David, a valiant warrior who would inaugurate his rule through impressive military victories, a king who would establish the geographic boundaries of his kingdom and then provide humane leadership to his people in accord with their covenant with God. That was certainly what faithful believers in the period of Second Temple Judaism believed and longed for, it was what they were expecting. Last week, Aaron asked the question, where should we begin Advent? And suggested in response that we should begin where we are. This week, maybe the question is, what are we expecting in Advent? 
Advent is indeed a time of expectation and longing, longing for the coming of the light in an ever-darkening season. But what's the nature of that light? What is it that we're expecting? We're going to look at Mary's song, and I think that we will find that she saw beyond the military political view of Messiah. She was expecting something different. Here's what she sang. My soul declares that the Lord is great. My spirit exults in my Savior, my God. He saw his servant girl in her humility. From now I'll be blessed by all peoples to come. The powerful one whose name is holy has done great things for me, for me. His mercy extends from father to son, from mother to daughter, for those who fear him. Powerful things he has done with his arm. He routed the arrogant through their own cunning. Down from their thrones he hurled the rulers. Up from the earth he raised the humble. The hungry he filled with the fat of the land, but the rich he sent off with nothing to eat. He has rescued his servant Israel, his child, because he remembered his mercy of old. Just as he said to our long-ago ancestors, Abraham and his descendants forever. At first it could look like what she was expecting was just another revolution. It doesn't sure doesn't sound like good news for those who are currently rich and powerful, the elites of the Roman Empire. But as we try to make sense of her song, we have the great advantage of seeing a bigger picture. We have the benefit of knowing the kind of kingdom that Jesus taught and that he brought. Jesus, who refused to rely on the rich and powerful to establish his authority, and who refused to use violence to enforce it. No, as we saw in our recent series on peace, Jesus rejected the politics of power and showed that he would rather die than fight. So let's look more carefully at Mary's song. Does it seem to you like Mary is getting a flavor of that new kingdom, that new kind of kingdom? She certainly sees that this will be a kingdom where the weak and the poor, the outcast and the downcast, the humble and the hungry, will have a place of honor. But it's not clear that they are being raised to power to displace the current lot. Now, this is not about winners and losers. It's not about the underdogs displacing the fat cats. It's the launching of a new kingdom. Yes, kingdom with a king, but a kingdom outside of the political, political realm, and a kingdom where all are welcome, but where the outcasts and the marginalized have a competitive advantage. This new kingdom operates outside of the frame of reference of the current political powers. So the poor, weak, and hungry don't need to take up arms and unseat the rich and powerful. Well then, how do they fall? I love the imagery in Mary's song where she sings, God has routed the arrogant through their own cunning. It's reminiscent of a theme which is recurrent in the Psalms, that those who set themselves against God will be punished by their own actions. Here's an example from Psalm 9. The nations have fallen into the pit they dug for others. Their own feet have been caught in the trap that they set. 
As one writer puts it, they are more punished by their sins than for their sins. Another example of this is the older brother in the parable of the two sons. The destitute prodigal son returns, is embraced in the father's love, and invited to the banquet table, a metaphor Jesus often uses for the kingdom. But what about the older brother? Is he kicked out, excluded, shunned, punished? No, quite the opposite. The father begs him to come in. But until he can let go of his pride, his entitlement, his self-righteousness, he can never enjoy the banquet. Again, he is punished by his sins rather than for them. I find myself wondering what happens to the rich in Mary's song who are sent away empty-handed, just as I wonder if the older brother ever gets over himself and joins the party. For the rich and powerful in Mary's song who are cast down into the ditch Does that become the place of grace for them? Now that their hands are empty, are they able to see and to long for the beauty of Jesus' kingdom? Are they able to find their way to the banquet table? Richard Rohr, in his book Falling Upward, writes about falling, midlife experiences of deep loss and failure, being critical, essential for our maturing into our full selves. He writes, The gospel was able to accept that life is tragic, but then graciously added that we can survive and will even grow from this tragedy. This is the great turnaround. It all depends on whether we are willing to see down as up, or, as Lady Julian of Norwich put it, first there is the fall, and then we recover from the fall. Both are the mercy of God. Mary's song may be revolutionary, but this is not a revolution in which the underclass violently usurp the power from the ruling class. This is the initiation of a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where blessing comes to the poor in spirit, to the meek and the merciful, and where those whose wealth and power makes them find that unattractive are left to suffer the consequences of their own choices. Mary is expecting a new kind of kingdom, but maybe none of this resonates for you. Maybe you're so trapped in the pain and struggles of your day-to-day life that revolution and a new kingdom are about the last thing on your mind. Does Mary have anything to say to you today? I think she does. I think that as Mary looks ahead, as she expects what is to come, she has a clear perspective that her suffering will be redeemed. She talks glowingly about how blessed she is, more blessed than all women. But what lies ahead for her in the next 35 years is a great deal of suffering. She will face the tremendous misunderstanding and judgment regarding her mysterious pregnancy, an improbable story that was full of fodder for the local gossips in Nazareth. Her fiancé hardly shows rock-solid commitment when she tells him her story, although he does come around in the end. She gives birth to her first child in very difficult circumstances. At the baby dedication, Simeon says great things about Jesus, but tells Mary that a sword will pierce her very soul. Then she, Joseph, and the baby become refugees in Egypt in order to avoid Herod's genocide. 
It's assumed that she faced early widowhood since Joseph is never mentioned during Jesus' ministry years. And then when she has, perhaps reluctantly, begun to really believe Jesus' message, she witnesses his brutal crucifixion. She is mentioned as being in the upper room after the ascension, but not thereafter. She just fades into obscurity. In her song, she describes herself as being blessed beyond belief, but few of us would see her experience as lining up with that description. I love the metaphor of our lives as tapestries. God is making something beautiful, but we're seeing the underside of it. We see it from below where it is just a mess of loose threads with seemingly a lot of black. But the completed tapestry is a beautiful picture, full of vibrant colors, the rich jewel tones accented with delicate black outlines. That beauty isn't visible in real time. We can't see it from our earthly perspective in the here and now. And it can be dangerous to try to draw close correlations between particular suffering and desired growth, as though God owes us some beauty after a season of pain and loss. God surely will bring beauty from ashes in our lives, but generally on timelines that are annoyingly unpredictable. Did Mary have a sense of all the hard things ahead, even as she is saying that her spirit was rejoicing in the God of her salvation? I actually think she did, and here's why. The verse where she seems giddy with joy is a direct quote from one of the Old Testament prophets, Hosea. Here's what he had to say, but I'll read it in its context. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Mary is echoing this kind of joy, a joy that depends not on circumstances, but on the God of her salvation. Did you know that $68 billion was spent in the U.S. this year to make people unhappy, fearful, and insecure? It's called the advertising industry. And of course it wants, us to, wants to put us in that state so that we buy its product to fill the gap that it has created in us. Is it it any wonder that we feel unhappy, fearful, and insecure? Mary didn't need an advertising industry. She had lots of objective reasons to feel unhappy, fearful, and insecure. But she was full of joy. Joy because God was faithfully fulfilling his promise to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. Joy because Jesus was being formed inside her. Joy, because with her active participation, a new kind of kingdom was coming. And we get to share her joy. Joy that's not based on circumstances. Joy that rests on the strength, goodness, and faithfulness of God. Joy, because Jesus is being formed in us. And joy, because even in our brokenness and neediness, we are invited to the banquet table because this is a kingdom for us.